It is fascinating to watch the Australian Bureau of Statistics slowly strip feed the new data in the months and the years after a census year. Now, I know if you know me, you know I don't like stats, but stick with me here. We are particularly interested in what you guys look like. Who are you? Where are you buying? What are you buying? This is the stuff that I love after a census. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today we are exploring who you are as first home buyers and what you are buying. But before we get into that, what is your special house this week, Megan? You've had a few weird ones in recent episodes, and this one looks quite lovely, I must say. Look at this. For those of you who aren't watching, this is a floating home in Ontario, Canada. Now, if you can see the two lights uh, down the bottom, they're, they're drive-in jet boat garages. So that, that's where you park your jet boat. <laughs> or two, two, because you have to have two. <laughs> what happens if they beautiful? have a bit, They do. It looks really stunning, but I didn't know it was floating. I just thought it was a lovely waterfront. Um, no, it's a floating home. What happens when there's, you know, a storm and a tempest and, you know, the, every, all the water starts rocking? Who knows? <laughs> like being on a floating caravan. I, <laughs> all of a sudden I don't love it anymore. <laughs> I don't want to get Maybe seasick. they find you know sheltered havens to to, <laughs> to pull up in in those events. It's pretty it's pretty impressive actually. It looks like a full on home, so it's not like yes, you know your yeah, floating caravans. Is. You get those those floating what well, they call them floating boxes that you get floating around. That walks through far river nicer or than that. Far um, nicer than that. Put me far on nicer. But it's funny to think that um, we talk about land is where the value is. You know, you've got to have a house on land, and this is a house on water. <laughs> you don't own any of the water unless you own the lake in which it, it is housed, and I'm sure yeah. these people don't, but they they might. Who knows? Yeah. What if you can own a lake? Anyway, all right, let's yes, kick it. Let's find out. And Veronica, you know, there's dams on um, properties. Mm. One might have a lake on one's ranch. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as the data dribbles out from the 2021 census, we all start to learn a little bit more about who we are as a nation. Now, I, for one, find it really interesting. And anyone who's ever read my commentary from the day that I started in Buyers Agency in 2003 knows that I hate stats. 
Lies, damn lies and statistics was the first commentary piece I wrote for a newspaper back in 2003. But these stats are really, really interesting and they're incredibly valuable for us as buyers agents and for you as home buyers. So within our buyers agency, we actually use a number of the demographic factors when we assess investment fundamentals of individual properties. So um, things like household structure, renting versus owning, property type in the suburb, household income, use of public transport. They're just a couple of the the, um, ABS stats that we use as a result of the census. You are funny because you say you hate stats and yet mm-hmm. you actually use them in your business on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> and, you know, it was funny because Kent Larder, <laughs> Kent Larder, my, my, you know, my geek on, my geek on short dial, um, he told me about this book called How to Lie with Statistics. It was written <laughs> in 1954 and I downloaded it and read it. It's a fantastic read. It's really, really good. And it, and it was, so the premise of the book was to, give people the tools to sort of um, not be fooled, you know, by by people who would lie with statistics. And um, so I think any prop, any self-respecting property uh, geek or property investor or property buyer even who thinks they like numbers um, should probably read that book. But yeah. <laughs> And you can find it. I found the copy for free. It's, it's out of copyrights. It's like it's ancient, but it's oh, could have been written yesterday. Um all right, so the data, um, okay, so you would have remembered doing the census back in 2021. And they happen every year. Is it five years or six years? Uh, five, five years because 2016 was the last yeah. one. And then they release it in two, um, they release the actual data to all the, the data scientists and the people that are in demographers and et cetera that are, that are interested in it in two um two chunks. I think there's a July release and an October release. And then you start to see these really interesting articles, you know, where people have got in there and dissected it. Okay. So this data that we're talking through, as Veronica mentioned, so census every five years and the census was in 2021. So this data largely relates to the 2019-2020 period. So what we found, what Veronica found was an article that pulled out some of the first home buyer stats. Now, um, some stats are really quite interesting, others aren't. So we've pulled out the really interesting ones because <laughs> I think it's important for some people to understand who they're like and and who's similar to them and who they're different to. So one of the things that um, has been observed is that first-time buyers are younger than changeover buyers. So we're going to sort of separate between first-time buyers and changeover buyers, whether they're upgrading, downsizing, whatever it is, they're going from one property to another for whatever well, reason. of course they're going to be younger because you can't upgrade or downsize if you haven't actually been a first-home buyer. Yes, but more than <laughs> a third, they're getting older. So mm, first-home buyers yeah. are actually getting older. So yeah. yes, but no. So more than a third are over 30. And this is why stats are so interesting because you can <laughs> swing it one way or another. Mm. Um, more than a third are over 35 compared to the late 1960s when they were around 26, just under 26 years old. So wow. there's a fairly big difference over that period of time in the average age of a first-home buyer. Mm. But, you know, what's really interesting, I think, Veronica, is, you know, we, we kind of look at that and go, okay, well, there's a stat. Why is it? Why has that happened? Um, and I think there's a number of reasons, but it's really interesting, I, I, I think, to look look back, back on. You know, it could be that they're waiting to establish their career. So people often left school, um, got straight into entry-level jobs and sort of worked their way up and may have been in a, a you know, a, a kind of level of job where they could afford to buy a house at an earlier age. Whereas there may be more people attending university, certainly there's more university attendance in this um, census 
set of data than there has been in previous years. Marrying later. I mean, the average age that people are marrying at is certainly getting later and later. Or well, I think going to that is having kids later, yeah. whether they're marrying or not. Um, certainly the average age of first-time parents, and I don't know that off the top of my head, but that is that is going up as well. Mm. And so these priorities are changing. So apart from the fact that, yes, house prices are expensive, apart from the fact that, yes, you've got to save for a deposit and that takes longer, the priority for a lot of people isn't so much first mm. thing, okay, work and then go and buy a home so I yeah. can have my family. The priority is to have life and then, oh, then I'll have family, oh, then I'll better get a home. So I guess <laughs> it's that change of priorities. And and just to that point, it's actually it's really interesting that um, the first home buyer demographic of family size is really similar to the changeover demographic. They've got three point two people. It always fascinates me the point two, but um, it's three point <laughs> two people in first home buyer households. And so, so if we looked back in the sixties it was probably more likely, and I haven't looked at those stats, but it's probably more likely that they were two-person households. They had actually hadn't started the family when they ah. were first home buyers. So that is an interesting um, indication that people are waiting until they have the children. 3.2 would indicate that there's potentially two parents, one or two children, um, or a parent and a, a couple of children. So it's interesting that that is similar. It's a similar household size to or other buyers of, of property that aren't first-time buyers. Mm, that is quite weird, isn't it? Do you know, so, okay, full disclosure, I was born in the 60s, the very end of the 60s, <laughs> but still the 60s, right? And my parents bought their first home six months before I was, actually six months after I was born, still in the 60s, just. Um, and there were two parents, obviously. <laughs> well, not obviously, but... Um, two parents, uh, before I was born, there were two incomes. But back then, wives often, when women got married, they they were not able to work anymore. Can mm. you believe that? Yeah. I mean, oh, my God. Um, so it was very much expected that you have a single income family. And certainly when you had a child, you weren't working. So my mum mm -hmm. did work, mm -hmm. you know, up while she was pregnant for a while. And she worked, you know, after obviously after she was married for a while. But, um, you know, so when they bought the house, they were down to a one-income family. They'd saved the deposit, though. You know, they'd been busy squirreling away when, when they were both working, whereas today's um, household makeup in terms of whether both parents are working or not, I mean, you, you really can't – there's not many families. It could be single-parent mm. – single, sorry, single-income um, families that could afford to buy their first home, you would think. My uh, my favourite clients were back in about 2006 or 2007, so house prices dramatically lower back then. They were a single-income family. He was an electrician. She um, was a full-time mum. They um, actually lived in a very, very small, um, very, very modest one-bedroom apartment in West End to save the entire purchase price of a $210,000 house, wow. which we found for them out at Eden's Landing. So out outskirts of Brisbane, that was the area they wanted to get into because they had family there. But that's the sacrifice that they were able to make back then on a single income. But they they told us that we were just, we were just blown away. How did you save this money? So think back then, it's mm. you know, 
2010 is a deposit on a property yeah. now. It's not the whole <laughs> house price. But I had so much admiration for them because they they gave up everything for that goal. That was their goal on a mm. single income. And I'll never forget just how impressed I was with the sacrifices they were prepared to make in order and once they got into the house, they could start living because they didn't mm. have a mortgage, they didn't pay rent, that, you know, they they really actually had put the blinkers on and, wow. and I was just, just so impressed. Just think, they were such good savers. They could have actually bought when they had half the amount of money and then continued to pay a mortgage instead of saving because, you know, they were such good savers. I wonder what they did with the extra money once they moved in. Lived a life, probably ate better than baked beans and noodles. I know, but do you reckon that people that are like great savers like that, do you reckon they can really spend money? You know how like they're savers and spenders? Yes, there is, and usually they marry each other. <laughs> well, you know what's actually funny? I I was listening recently as a Brené Brown podcast uh, with this couple called the Gottmans. It is an amazing one to listen to. If you get a chance, download yeah. it and, and listen to her podcast. Totally. So there's, the Gottmans are a, a, um, a, a couple of sort of doctors, uh, American, they're like in their seventies or eighties now. And they're like, they've saw like they've studied relationships and they're also, um, I think she's the, the counselor or the therapist and they've worked out, you know, they can predict basically whether people are going to stay together or not, you know, for the first five minutes. And, and, ah. but that's sort of not the point. The point the conversation was around the savers and spenders and that how awful, like two spenders will have a great time together, just spending and, no, no struggle there. Two savers, you know, obviously they've both got common objectives and they knuckle down and do what they need to do. But when a spender and a saver gets together, oh, we could probably do a whole podcast on spenders <laughs> and savers. Like, I mean, it's really tough. And and in fact, some of the people that I've interviewed, some of you, some of you who may be listening that know who I'm talking about, some of the people that I've interviewed, you know, for for you know us putting together this course and et cetera, et cetera. And have shared with me about what the experience is like being the saver, living with the spender. It it's pretty hard. And like if that spender's respectful and can be reined in, great. But oh my God, what a nightmare. Yeah, but on not- the other hand, being a spender, um, it's hard Are to you be reined in. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you've obviously a actually I'm a spender too. You know, I've changed a bit. Uh, I have, but I um I I'm, just I'm had a goal oriented earn- spender. Well, same so here. I, and I had to earn more money. Exactly. <laughs> I had to work out how to earn more money. But also if I know that, uh, you know, I've got a thing that I, an investment opportunity that I'm working towards, I'll just turn it off. So yeah. I'll turn the spending off. But when, when I don't, then I tend to be a little bit, I can be frivolous. I do like handbags and shoes. Well, that's a good spender though because you got to enjoy your life. Right, you do need to enjoy your life. I think savers can be really boring at times. Um, if that's if that's all we they give do. her all the savers in the world, but we need you. We need you. <laughs> no, but the savers without we learn sort of, from you. <laughs> yeah, savers that can't, um, you know, just relax a little, let the hair down a little bit, and have a bit of fun at times um, would be pretty puritanical. You know, pretty hard to live with. But I guess I'm a goal oriented spender as well. You're like, you know, and in fact, I've had more of a social conscious over the last, say, decade where I've really realized that spending is actually not spending un, um, unconscious or not unconsciously, but without intention um, is not really good for the planet. So I've actually reined in for other reasons, um, but I do still enjoy fine things and I'm just more discerning on what I spend my money on um, and certainly don't, yeah, I, I, 
I ask myself more questions before doing it. Well, this is going into a bit philosophical, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Anyway. Let's get back on track. So speaking of spending, <laughs> um, the average price for a first home buyer, um, according to the census, was 600000 Now, remember, this is across the country. You can't buy something for 600000 in a lot of locations, and 600 will buy you something amazing other other locations. But on average, across the country, 600000 was the average purchase price for first home buyers compared uh, interesting to- Interesting, that. Why? What's the magic number? Like that's the threshold for quite a few grants. Anyway, that I just thought was yeah, interesting. Yeah, right. I see where mm. you're going. Yeah, 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 yeah. However, an average Depending means which that yeah. loads are, are less and, and, and plenty more, of Yeah, but, but <laughs> in comparison, that. the the um uh the changeover buyers average price was eight hundred and forty seven thousand. So it still shows that first home buyers are buying at the lower end of the average market. Um, which we would expect because they're mm-hmm. early, often earlier in their career earning capacity and therefore serviceability. Now, the thing that has really changed is that they spend on average, first-time buyers spend on average 18% of their income, almost twice as much as other buyers at 10.1%. Now, this is a really interesting stat mm-hmm. and it is something that you could interpret, again, lies, damn lies and statistics, you could interpret this a whole lot of ways. And I think that this will be one that will show up in the media quite a lot because there is such disparity. Um, but, of course, if if you're putting a lot of your savings and, and, if, and then your income into servicing a loan and you're on an upward trajectory, so you're earlier in your career and your career is still sort of moving in an upward direction and your income continues to increase, Versus, so that's often first home buyers versus changeover buyers who may have reached maybe peak of earning capacity or have moved into retirement phase. And often the income that those people are earning is a lot less because they may be going through into the pension cycle, self-funded retirees. Um, so their income levels might actually be lower. So this is a statistic that I think we're going to see um, thrown around a lot and depending on which angle the media want to take in that particular article, we could see, you know, it's it's you know, dramatically difficult for first home buyers, or you know, it's it's really easy for older buyers, <laughs> without going into the details of how that's made up. And and um, and that's a really interesting thing. My parents are in that you know self funded retiree sort of fight phase, asset rich but not a huge amount of income. So they would mm. sit, you know, and they're they're downsizing at the moment. So they sit in that that space where they don't actually contribute a lot of their income to paying a mortgage or to servicing um, the cost of buying a house because they're using their asset that's accumulated over time to pay for the new asset. Which is the ideal, isn't it? You really want to go into retirement owning your home outright and, you know, hopefully some investments as well and a nice fat super balance. That's sort of like the holy grail, isn't it? It makes life a lot easier. I think um, similar sized families and similar sized houses. Mm. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. So we talked about the the house size being quite similar, and and maybe one of the reasons it sits behind that being that people are buying houses at a later for their first house at a later age in their mid thirties. Mm. So they've already potentially coupled up, potentially had one or two children. It may, you know, first time buyers also can be families that have um, maybe separated and come together. As, as a first home buying family. So there may be some blended families in those statistics as well. But the interesting thing is they're buying similar sized houses to 
the changeover buyers, hmm. about three or four bedrooms. So we're not talking about the average first home buyer buying a one-bedroom apartment in Australia in that period of time. It's actually the bigger house. Now, I found that really interesting, Veronica. Mm, it is interesting, isn't it? Because then you think, well, what are the people that are upgrading, upgrading from and why did they buy something smaller than this lot of first home buyers? Like it's a, it's quite an interesting um or, you know, is it unrenovated to renovate mm. it or, yeah, I guess how or does that work? Or is it regional versus city? You know, because that, yeah. there's, there's not a really good lot of, there's not a good data set on where first-time buyers are buying because the only data that they use uh, relate to the first-time buyer schemes. And, of course, there's, there's a lot that push people into new properties further mm. out from the city, you know, those sorts of things. So there's not really good data. The banks probably come up with better data on those sorts of statistics than, than the census, I, I think. I find their data a little bit more useful in terms of where people are buying. Mm. Um, but it's, it is, uh, you know, that one to me was the biggest, really, they're big houses for first-time buyers. But I guess it does if if their data is skewed to people who have been taking up the uh, first home buyer grants to buy brand new and they're not buying apartments, then it stands to reason because I guess out in, in yeah. on the outer suburbs and all the all the subdivisions, they're not building two bedroom houses, yes. are they? Yeah. So that would stand to reason, which is quite interesting. And also what is interesting is um what I'd love to see some data on is that the resales of these houses because yeah. if people are buying them or how long they're buying them and how long they're living in them but i guess that's a longitudinal study that the census isn't quite the right vehicle for that no but i think what's interesting is the higher incomes mm. and and i guess this is you know this i guess speaks to the um rising house prices that affordability challenge and also the uh the time it takes to save a deposit so you need good incomes to do that but more than half of first-time buyers are in the top two quintiles of disposable income yep so mm. that is fascinating for me that that's one of the statistics that I, I don't know i had to i had to look at the graph i had to look at the numbers i had to look back again um and and graphically it's really quite interesting and we'll put the link to the article in the show notes because mm. this, this is really something that's interesting to look at um so at the lower ends at the lower um quintiles of of income actually the changeover buyers are a higher percentage and again it might come back to the fact that some of those are in the retirement phase and therefore not earning a great deal of income um, and using more of their asset base to to do the changeover but as you move into a part uh, into the third quartile, fourth and uh, quintile, sorry, fourth and fifth quintile, then first home buyers are much higher income earners than changeover buyers. Yeah, so when it comes to income, the first home buyers really in the like out earn compared to changeover buyers in the mm. third, fourth and fifth quintile. That mm. means 60% of income of buyer, property buyers, first home buyers have earned more money. Which is, I don't know, that's a little bit Interesting, scary. isn't it? Interesting. Well, I think that's something we'll probably see a little bit more discussed and, and um, a little bit of interest into why that is. Well, they're saying in this, in this um, article that a quarter of changeover buyers, which is what you're talking about, which is the downsizers and the, um, Upgraders you know, and so downsizers. the retirees, mm. a quarter of those changeover buyers have no employed people, so they're retired, right? Mm. Um, and around 30% rely on government pensions. As So 
that would fit into that too. So I guess mm. a big, big, big chunk of those um, changeover buys. It's a shame they don't have upgraders and downsizers separated out because that would be quite fascinating. Wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but also what it does do, it does show how much money you really need to be earning to be able to buy a property and to get into the market. Mm. Mm. And and I think that that's a bit sobering, to be quite honest. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, ways to accelerate getting into the market and really earning more money is, is I know it sounds a bit trite, but actually finding a way to earn more money is actually the best thing you can do. Yeah. And, in fact, I read, I actually literally read a, um, a blog from the, the Barefoot Investor who um, recently basically said one of his three tips on, on how to deal with rising interest rates was go and earn more money. Mm. <laughs> and, and and we've got a situation of low unemployment at the moment and this, you know, the massive, the mass resignation and all the rest of it. Apparently the way in which you can earn more money is there's lots of ways you can educate yourself. You can actually, um, this, you know, do, do really be really valuable to your employer. That's a good way to do it. But um, by changing over, by changing jobs, that's what, one way that people are actually making um, a big in, improvement to their, uh, to their incomes. Mm. So that's, going to be quite an interesting thing to watch i guess yeah yep the i think the one that probably left me scratching my head a little bit more than any of the other statistics and and left me wanting to find out more about what sits behind that um but i think you're right veronica it, it really is about that the need to how you need how much money you need to earn in order to be able to save a deposit whilst you're also living paying rent and food and increase in petrol costs and cost of living and so forth is actually rising over time um and that kind of plays out in that graph uh so that's a really interesting one yeah there's an, another chart there it talks about location um and that um really to get into the market first home buyers are actually moving further out from the cities now that's mm. nothing new in the sense that you know into the the outer subdivisions of cities melbourne i've, I've it's probably big, bigger now but it, it it got to one point where it was 100 kilometers from um east to west that's that's the and and there's more land so it's probably yeah. bigger now yeah. um, than the last time I heard that stat and Sydney if you actually went from Palm Beach and went to drive down to Waterfall so it's the uppermost suburb to the bottommost suburb I think it'd take you two and a half hours um, so I'm not even going from the coast to west right yeah. um, so so therefore not that actually Palm Beach is affordable don't get me I mean that not necessarily painting the picture here but also <laughs> with the sea change and tree change and we've had we've had um students that have fallen into this category where they've yeah. actually gone and, and look, deliberately looked at regional areas uh in order to get a good lifestyle buy a lovely home and 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 you know Be have, a, have a, a lovely lifestyle community. for their family mm. and to get into the market so that is starting that is um that is enough of that happening that there's a chart for it so, yeah. you know, it's not just an anomaly, a one or two off. This is happening quite often. It does open up opportunities when you start to look at the regional areas, um, particularly now that the work from home phenomenon seems to be, even in a hybrid way, here to stay. Um, and, and businesses are certainly more open to those opportunities because of labour shortages and skilled specialists being in, in short supply. 
So if they've got to be a bit flexible with where somebody lives, and and that might be uh, you know an hour, two two hours, three hours drive from the city centre, but they can come in one or two days a, a week or two or three days a fortnight, um, then that that is a real opportunity, I think, for first home buyers to look out, think outside the square, and think outside the inner city apartment. Um, you know, for those people that we talked about, and there are a few episodes where we've done case studies with with people who've done um, regional changes. It was as much about the change in the lifestyle and actually immersing themselves in the communities into which they moved and changing the the thought of, you know, we can just duck out and, and get any kind of cuisine that we want really quite easily and, and any night of the week we can eat out to, right, well, maybe we, we do a little bit more cooking at home and, and maybe there's only one um, Asian restaurant in town and we do have to plan to go to the city if we want to have something different. So it is a different way of living and it's not for everybody, but I think an, a, a good thing to do in that case is actually rent in those areas before you move, before you buy and, and experience the different lifestyle that exists because it isn't just about being less traffic and lower density. There's, there's It's a really different way of life. To move out of a, a major city yeah and look a, a couple of things on that unfortunately the rental crisis is meaning that's really difficult to do so people mm. have taken the plunge and buying which is one of the reasons that prices have been rising mm. so rapidly but also the demographic for a lot of these areas is changing because you've typically uh, you know a lot of these sort of coastal areas you might have you've had a lot of um retirees yeah. moving there over the last few decades yeah and so the nice thing is i guess that the demo the um the age profile is starting to change because you d- you don't want to be the only young person in the village, yeah, do you? you yeah. know, and um, <laughs> you want other, and your children you want, not having a lot of other children to play that's with. That's it. You mm. want your kids to be at school with you know quite an, a, a number of friends. You know, you want you want that whole you want a community, and um, and so that is all changing. So that's sort of unfolding as we're seeing it. But mm. it's interesting to see that there's it's quite a noticeable trend and it's actually made its way into the data. Mm. Now, why is this so interesting and why did we do a whole episode on it? Well, apart from the fact that I find it fascinating and and it applies directly to how we assess um, not only areas but individual properties as well, if you're in your 30s, and this is what we really want people to kind of um, think about, if you're in your 30s and embarking on your first home buyer journey, you are not too late to the party you know, really let it sink in. Mm. You are not too late. You're about average. If you're 40, you're still around the average. You have a shorter runway, so you've got to think differently if you're going to do a stepping stone strategy or or another way to actually work your way up to your dream house. But you are not too late to the party. And and I think that's really important. And, and it, I think that what this is about is giving a lot of people relief. Mm. You still can do this. And the average First home buyer in Australia is currently in their mid thirties. Yeah, and I think what's important too, we've we've been um, talk. I've been talking to a number of people in their fifties that are first home buyers, or and in fact, governments. And we've done a few episodes on um, acceleration, uh, you know, government programs to help people yeah. get into the market. And it is nice to see that governments across countries, both state and federal, are recognising that if you don't have a property but you've owned one before, particularly if you're in a relationship, for instance, and there's been a breakup, that you they are viewing you as first home buyers now. So it's like if you don't own a home, if you don't own your own home, a lot of the new um, uh, programs are helping you as well. And so you're not being left out of it. And I think that's that's wonderful. And in fact, a lot of those programs that are 
starting to, or the initiatives that are starting to be um, uh, released are better initiatives than throwing money at you to buy brand new as well. They're actually better initiatives. And so I think it's lovely that they're actually targeting those that really do need help because when you're getting a bit further away from your mid-30s, obviously it gets tougher and tougher Mm -hmm. and you don't want to be going into retirement with huge debt. So, um, But you don't want to go into retirement without owning a home. So I think it's really good. It's a great initiative and, and hopefully we're going to see more of that. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff. 